began last week a teaching series on neighboring, which is basically a, a big experiment in obedience. And we're asking, what would happen if God's people took seriously the great commandment to love God with all of your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself? What would happen if we actually obeyed God in this area of Matthew chapter 22? We love to go deep, but sometimes when we go deep, we go deep and we're really seeking to to mask our unwillingness to obey some of the simplest of commands like love your neighbor as yourself. Love those people that he loves, starting with those who are next door to you. And the problem is, is that we can oftentimes simply turn this command into just this generalization. Like, I love my proverbial neighbor. Anybody feel that? Like, I'm okay. No conviction here. I I love my proverbial neighbor. And we justify our lack of loving loving our, our, our literal neighbor next door. And so that's what we're looking at throughout the course of these few weeks in this neighboring series. And, and today we get a, a great picture of what it would look like if your home was a love hub. Anybody want that? I want my home to be a love hub for my neighborhood. And so turn with me to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, 27 through 32 is our scripture this morning. If you need a Bible, we have some in the seats here. And if you don't have one back at your home, or your apartment, or your dorm, or wherever you live, take that one home with you. We'd be grateful for you to, to take that and, and to have that. While you're turning there, I'm going to quiz you. Can I give you a quiz? All right, fill in the blank. So I'm going to party like it's... Somebody, what? I'm going to party like it's 1999. Well, my sermon today is, is titled, Party Like It's 8029. That's, that's the sermon. We're going we're gonna to look at the example of, of Jesus at a house party and, and see how Jesus parties. And so let's read our scripture, Luke chapter 5, 27 through 32. It says, And after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is so good. And it's, again, so familiar to many of us that we just kind of gloss right over it. Here we're introduced to this man named Levi. He's called Levi here, and in the Gospel of Mark, and in the book of Matthew, the Gospel according to Matthew, he's called Matthew. And Levi was his Hebrew name. Matthew was his Greek name. He worked for the Greek-speaking Romans. And, and, and so here's the, the context of what's happening here. We're at the beginning of, of Jesus's earthly ministry, and he's been doing tons of ministry to this point. He's been healing people. He's been casting out demons. He's been doing the synagogue circuit, traveling around and, and teaching. He's been healing more people and healing more people and teaching. And all along the way, what he's been doing is he's been picking up disciples, 12 men to be his disciples, his trainees, his, his pupils, so that they would later become his apostles. And when he dies and resurrects and ascends, they would then carry the, the torch. And, and so far, what we've seen is that he has appointed 
some guys who were very similar to each other. We've seen Simon Peter and his brother Andrew. These are Jewish fishermen along uh, the, the shore of Galilee, the, the Sea of Galilee up in uh, Capernaum. And, and he's appointed these two brothers. Then he appoints James and, and John, also young Jewish fishermen. They're, they're teenagers from Capernaum. And, and, and both of those two are business partners with Simon and, and, and Andrew. And so Jesus is kind of pulling his team together. And as you can imagine, these these four fishermen, they're very similar, and so the camaraderie in the team is, is very strong. I remember baseball tryouts back when I was in high school. The, the coach would, we'd have a few weeks of, of tryouts and, and playing and, and whatnot, and then inside of the locker room was the coach's office with blinds. You couldn't look in, and every now and again, he would step out and give us a charge or something before hitting the field, and, and he would put the, the cut list or the roster of the team on the window outside of his office inside of the locker room, and the day... Uh, that it was time for him to give you the final roster who made the team. The guys would wait for the, the locker room door to be unlocked. He would unlock the door and we'd bust in. And whoever got to the window first, got to the list first, would read out the names of, of the people who were on the, the team. And so he would say, you know, John and, and, and James. And everybody would be high-fiving and chest-butting and doing all the things that guys do in, in locker rooms. And, and a lot of, you know, yeah, boy. You know, it was, everybody's excited. It was, it was cool. And, and this is kind of what I picture happening as Jesus is pointing, appointing disciples. Everybody's excited. Yeah, there's, there's Peter and there's, there's Andrew. Yeah, and then there's James and John. Oh, yeah, Fisher and business partners. Yeah, boy. And they're all excited, you know. And then all of a sudden, and Levi. What? Like, strike out Levi? Are you serious right now? Size? Like, wait, wait a second. You, seriously? Coach, he is so going to, to let us down. How do we know this? He's a tax collector. Levi is a, a, a tax collector. He's already proven that he's a, he's a chump, that he's a, a sellout. He was, he was Jewish. We know that because of his rich uh, Hebrew name. And he's working as a tax collector for who? The enemy. For, for, for Rome, and on, on top of that, he, he sold, out, sold out to Rome, but he's also just dirty because tax collectors are guys who would jack the price up and skim off the top for themselves, for their own personal gain. But verse 27 tells us that, that Jesus sees Levi. He's got his other disciples starting to, to roll in. The team is being formed, a lot of camaraderie. And then he sees Levi, and he walks over to Levi, and he says, I want you to follow me. And it says that when Levi hears this, what does he do? He just drops everything, right? What? I'm on the team? Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm there. And he just takes off and, and he goes. Can you imagine how overwhelmed Levi was by the grace of God? That God would come into his mess, into his dirty business, his con business, and show up and say, I want you, yeah, you, I want you to follow me. Are you, Seriously calling me to the, the team? I mean, I'm sitting in a tax booth. This is like the local seminary going into the club to recruit their next class. I mean, are you for real? Like, is this what we're going to do? Is this what we're gonna do? Is how we're going to roll? And, you know, we can't know exactly what Jesus is thinking here, but I think two things are likely. First of all, the grace of Jesus. Right? We see just how gracious Jesus is, that Forgiveness is available for, for even the worst of us. It, it's, it's there. And Levi was robbing his own people. And Jesus says, and here's grace for you. We also see, I think, the, the insight 
of Jesus in all of this. Based on the, the rest of, of the, the text, I think Jesus knew that Levi was uniquely equipped to relate with tax collectors and with sinners, people who very much needed Jesus. And we'll look at that a little bit more. Some of us today, maybe you're sitting in your tax collector booth of sort. Your, your life is, is a tax collector booth of, of sorts. There's things that you're involved in that you know are sinful and maybe you're even a, ashamed of. And Jesus is here to say, hey, I have grace for you. I'm approaching you and I'm saying, I want you to follow me. First John 1 John 1.9, what does it say? It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and he's just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That's our, our Lord. Grace for Levi, grace for you. I want you to get that right up front. Now, here's what Jesus, here's what God does next. That for you and, and for Levi, though your time as a tax collector, whatever your sin is, fill in the blank, your rebellion, what God does is though it wasn't a season of, of honoring God, God likes to take this season and use it as an inroad for loving and serving and caring for a new set of people. People that you, because of maybe your sin, perhaps, you're now uniquely equipped to serve them. Don't you love how God doesn't waste your failures? God doesn't waste your, your sin and your failure. Instead, he kind of turns it and, and rebuilds it for, for good. Your brokenness, your mess, becomes a beautiful mosaic. It's, it's a wonderful thing that God does. And then the rest of the passage, what we see is we see Jesus and and Levi ministering to Levi's partners in crime. So cool. So after Jesus calls Levi, what what does he do next? Verse 28 says Levi, he drops everything, he follows Jesus, and then what? Let's read it again. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. And so what is Levi's response to Jesus's gracious invitation to be his disciple? I'm throwing Jesus a party, right? And and where is he throwing the party at? In his house. Throws Jesus a party in his house. And who all is invited? Naturally, Jesus for him and Jesus' disciples up to that point come along. And then it says tax collectors and sinners. In other words, a bunch of dirtbags, right? Can you imagine Peter and and Andrew and, and James and John at this scene? These guys who are disciples of Jesus They're not quite sanctified yet, you know? I mean, they're fresh following Jesus. Can you imagine them sitting in this party and and checking things out and seeing those guys over there have been ripping them off? Knowing Peter, and and if you know Peter in the Bible, he's the guy who's always like stepping ahead, a little cocky, a little, you know, foot in his mouth kind of guy. I'm just picturing Andrew, you know, holding Peter back. Peter, don't don't you do it right now. And they're at this party and these unsanctified new disciples. Let Let me ask you, does Jesus call off the party because of the guest list? So you go, oh man, I can't go there. Are you serious? He doesn't call off the party. Instead, what Jesus does is he endorses the party, doesn't he? You read through the rest of the text, and, and he endorses this party. And, and so Levi becomes a, a Christian. He becomes a disciple of Jesus. And what is Jesus' first discipleship move? Is it, okay, Levi, we're going to sit at the local Capernaum Starbucks, and we're going to open our Bibles, and we're going to memorize Scripture together. No. Nope. The first move was, I'm going to the party with you, my man. And they go to this party together. Jesus endorses this party with his presence and later with his defense before the religious people about the party. Party on Matthew. Party on Jesus. I'm dating myself with a Wayne's World reference for those of you who are in college and have no idea what I'm talking about. 
party Jesus, right? Now, does that feel irreverent to you? Maybe a little bit irreverent. Why is that? It's because we've allowed our culture to hijack this idea of party. To party today means to get wasted, naked, climb a tree, and regret everything the next day, right? But is that what we see in the Scripture? Now, for Jesus, to party meant to enter into people's world, to meet people, to not be holier than thou, to get to know people, to laugh with people, to have fun with people, and, and to proclaim his grace to people. And, and maybe even, God forbid, to have fun with people. That's what it means for, for Jesus. When's the last time you pictured Jesus as a party lover? A lot of times we picture Jesus as a stuffy guy. But as we read the Bible, we get a different picture. He was a party lover, so much so that his enemies, his foes, accused him of eating too much, of drinking too much, and hanging out with the wrong people. Matthew chapter eleven nineteen. 19. Think about his, his first miracle. Where was it at? A wedding. What did he do? Turn party into wine, you think every, or water into wine. You think everybody liked that guy? Yeah, I think they liked that guy pretty good, right? And we have lots of newlyweds among us. And, and I know some of you, you have the do not invite to this party list. You know what I'm talking about? Like they, cannot, they should not come to my wedding, right? Jesus was not that guy. Jesus got invited. A lot of times we think of Jesus as the cosmic killjoy. Like, I don't want to be around him. They wanted to be around him. He got invited. People like the presence and enjoy the presence of Jesus. Does Jesus have wrath? Yes. Is God angry at sin? Yes, because it kills those he loves. But you know what? God also created joy. And God also created laughter. And he wants this for you. And he wants this for me. And he wants this for people in our neighborhoods. And God became a man. And he embodied that joy, didn't he? And he went to to parties. Max Lucado says it this way. Check this out. He says, I think it's significant that common folk in a little town enjoyed being with Jesus. I think it's noteworthy that the Almighty didn't act high and mighty, that the Holy One wasn't holier than thou. You don't get the impression that his neighbors grew sick of his haughtiness and asked, who do you think you are, God? His faith made him likable, not detestable. I love this. He wasn't too good to be hanging out with the riffraff, even though he was good, well beyond what we could ever imagine. People were drawn to his warmth and his presence. Now, let me be very clear. Jesus was likable, but again, as he begins to share the message and his ministry moves forward, people most definitely turned against them, didn't they? Do not be surprised when the world hates you, the Bible says. And so the goal is not to be liked. That's not the goal at all, right? And if so, you will eventually, if not already, face disappointment. But we do need to see initially Jesus as enjoyable, as approachable, as hangoutable. He's fully God, but he's also fully human. And he longs to be with people and he longs to have fun and laugh just like us. That's Jesus. He knew how to have a good time with people. Am I allowed to say that? He knew how to have a good time with people. And so let me show you something. Fill in the blank. Here's a familiar verse for you. Luke chapter 19 verse 10 says this. 
the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost, right? Here's another one for you, and it may surprise you. Matthew chapter 11, verse 19. For the Son of Man came eating and drinking. What? Is that surprising? Let me read the rest of that. Matthew chapter eleven nineteen. 19. The, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet, wisdom is justified by her deeds. Now, there are a few things I want to point out with this great passage. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And how did he do it? The Son of Man came eating and drinking by befriending people, by being neighborly, and then proclaiming the truth. And they say, and, and who are they? The religious people that we see in our, our story here in, in, in Luke. They say, look at him, glutton and a drunkard, friends with tax collectors and, and, and sinners. He shouldn't be hanging out with those people, right? And Jesus ignores them. Christian, who are your non-Christian friends? Like six or seven years ago, before moving to Boston, it hit me really hard. I don't know that I have any non-Christian friends. There's a problem with that. There's a very big problem with that. Christian, if you do not have any non-Christian friends, you are missing out on a very key component of being Christ-like. They say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of sinners and tax collectors. And then the last seven words are powerful. Look at it. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. They look down their self-righteous noses at Jesus and yet his wisdom was, was justified by what? Deeds. Look at his fruit. Look what happened because he befriended sinners. And, and who wrote this summary of Jesus' party life? Matthew or Levi. He's saying right now, he's summarizing his Jesus, and he's saying, listen, they told him not to hang out with my friends. And he didn't listen. And he hung out with my boys, and I saw my boys' lives forever changed. And so the question is, will you party like it's AD 29? Will you party like Jesus? What would happen if we partied like Jesus? What would happen if we opened up our home and our guest, look, our guest book looked a little different than just the, the membership roster of our church? That there was a, a healthy mix of neighbors and, and co-workers and, and, and Christian friends. And we all together enjoyed each other's company. And we laughed. And like Jesus, we were relatable. What if we partied like Jesus? Being very careful, like Levi, to make sure that Jesus is the honored guest at the party. We held a, a birthday party for my, my oldest son uh, this summer. And only people who were invited were his, his school friends. And so this was very foreign to them. They don't, they don't do this, right, most of them. And, and, and so this was very, very foreign to him. And I said, okay, buddy, well, you know we're having pizza at the birthday party. And what do we do when we have food? We pray. So 
are you okay with that? Are, are, you, are you okay if we pray for the food? You know, you're, you're a Christian. And he goes, yeah, yeah, Dad, that's cool. I'm, I'm okay with that. And so we have the party, and the, the pizza shows up. And I said, okay, guys, um, glad you came to the party. I really hope you're having a lot of fun. And in our family, before we eat, we, we pray. And so I'm going to take a minute to do this. And if, if you're uncomfortable with that or your family doesn't do that, you don't have to pray. I'm not forcing you, but I'm just going to pray. And I just prayed. I said, God, thank you for the food. Thank you for uh, Isaiah and for his life and for how much of a blessing he is. And God, I pray your blessing on each of these kids and on all of their families. And I just said that. And I said, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Very simple. But we just want to make sure we're keeping Jesus the center of our party. We're not going to not be who we be because some other people be around. You know what I'm talking about? We're going to be like Christ, right? We're going to party and be true to our, our, our faith. And then after I prayed, one of his buddies was awesome. Looked down at him. He's like a hand bone. And in slow motion, he crosses his chest. And he looks up at me and he goes, <laughs> It was awesome. I love this kid. He's, he's, good, at, he's good at picking friends. And, and maybe you're thinking, well, Josh, it's easy for you because, you know, you're, you're a pastor and you're trained to speak and, and, and to do that. Let me, can I just say, it's so much more natural and organic for you, though. Like, we can go back and forth on this, but I'm going to win this argument. People expect me to be pastoral. Like, whenever I go to the family reunions, Josh is an ordained minister. He's got to pray. I'm like, Dad, you always pray. Why do I got to do it now? You know? They just expect me to pray. But when you pray as a student, when you talk about your faith as, a, as a, just an employee, and you just talk naturally about what God is doing in your life and who you are and who you are in Him and what you're excited about and what you did on Sunday and what you did on Wednesday night at Connection, when you just talk about it organically and not make it into this big, massive, I've got to confront him, we've got to sit down over coffee, and I've got to give it to him. You just organically do it. It's, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful thing. I was at this pizza place on the top of Metropolitan Hill this summer after a baseball game with my kids, and, and we all went out with a bunch of you know, teammates, and the kids were, had their own table, and the ladies had their own table, and then the husbands had this other table over there. They're hanging out. And apparently, I get the story, I put it all together afterwards. You know, they're just being guys, you know, and saying things that guys say. And, and I'm sitting there just like, this is different for me, and it's good. But six years ago, I said I didn't have any non-Christian friends, and so here we are. This is a good thing. And, and at some point, the, the conversation temperature just like changed real quick. And I said, what? That was weird. And I told my wife about it afterwards. She said, yeah, so... Over at the ladies' table, people start saying, so what do you do? What, what does your husband do? And it was, oh, my husband's a pastor. And one of the ladies texted her husband <laughs> across the room and said, did you know Josh is a pastor? And then all of a sudden, it went from like potty mouth city to, I love to serve my community. I love to be civic-minded. It was hysterical. But for you, it's so organic. For me, it's just flat-out awkward. I've had people, I've talked to them for 30 minutes, and all of a sudden the question comes up. Literally had one person say, listen, father. (laughs) I'm a father, but you can call me Josh. The Bible says call no man father, so call me Josh. 
Father, um, I apologize for anything I've said over the past 30 minutes. <laughs> and I said, bless you, son. You know? <laughs> Listen. Can we just share our faith and just share our story and let our home be love hubs and just party like it's 80, 29, like it's Jesus and relate with people and connect with people? You have a home and you have a story and your home might not be the traditional home like on the card in your river guide. Your home might be a dorm. It might be an apartment. It might be a studio, whatever it is. But that's a great tool for you. Let's not overlook that tool. As we said last week, neighboring trumps programming any day of the week. You being a good neighbor over us putting on some awesome program trumps it any day of the week. You have a home, you have a story. You don't need to memorize some great acronym. And then again, it's awkward again. Just share how God's story intersected with your story and you were changed, right? I'll never forget, I was, I think I was 16 years old and this girl, I think she was a little older than me, so I think it was her 18th birthday party, blew us out of the water. All kinds of friends came out and, 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 and we went to this birthday party and hanging out, having a good time. I think it was a pool party. And then at the middle of the party, she gets up and she's like, uh, like, speech, speech, we're just being stupid. And she gets up and she goes, I just want to thank everybody for coming to my birthday party. I'm just so grateful for, for all the friends that God's given me. I'm just really thankful for every single one of you. This year has been awesome. And, you know, I just want to, I want to tell you what's happened in my life over the course of this year. This girl's like 16 or 18 years old, one of the big ones, you know. And she goes, let me just tell you about Jesus. And she said, here's what happened in my life. And she just shared how over the course of that year, she gave her life to Jesus. It's that simple. And some people said, is she really doing this right now? And other people were just glued. But like when Paul shares at Mars Hill or Areopagus, some people said, I don't want anything to do with that. Other people said, I'm going to hear you later. But some people said, I want that Jesus you're talking about. That's what it means to be a good neighbor, to love your neighbor as yourself, to let yourself party like Jesus party, to be with people that don't look like church folk necessarily. It's one of the most sanctified things you can do is party like it's AD 29. Your story and your home. Now, I've been really intrigued this week with what God has done in Cuba. I've been reading up on this a little bit. 1959, under Fidel Castro, led this great persecution of evangelical churches, and they were persecuted. And Cuba is declared an atheistic country. And all the way up until 1992, when it was formally changed into a secularist country. And so now they're, they're freer to, to worship, but the restrictions have been placed upon them that they're not allowed to buy buildings and to expand and to grow as a healthy church naturally should. If you're a healthy organism, you're going you're gonna to grow, right? If we're not growing, there's a, there's a problem with that. 
And so along with not being able to purchase more church buildings and, and property, the communist government tightened restrictions and put a cap on the number of people that could actually be a part of a church. Oh, no, right? Well, that's not what they did. There's a cap. So what do we do when we hit that cap? We start another church, right? And then when that church hits the cap, what do we do? We start another church. And what happened was of biblical proportions, a church planting movement throughout the communist country, right? And God's gospel is being proclaimed, and churches are growing and multiplying and multiplying and multiplying. Same thing that happened in China, and they're forced to use homes to, to worship in. And when persecution comes upon these people, does the gospel cease to move forward? No, Jesus said, I will build my church and all the junk and all the persecution that comes against you is going to be used for good. You can't stop me, right? It's an amazing thing that God does. How appropriate is that for us today with the announcement that we received earlier? You can't stop this. God wants to do something. God's going to do something. Do we leave bummed about our building situation? Of course not. God is up to something very good, and he will use it for good. Like China, like Cuba, like throughout the New Testament, homes are an incredible tool of God. Think about Peter, his house, Peter and Andrew. Remember the story of what happened in that house? Became the ministry hub for Capernaum, and the dudes ripped open the, you picture Peter like, you're ripping a hole in my ceiling. I don't even have insurance back then, I don't know. And they're ripping a hole, and it's this, ministry hub out of their home or Zacchaeus the wee little man and the wee little man was he and Jesus went to his house today and go into your house today or Mary and and Martha and and Lazarus right and and their home we don't know who but the, the guy who provided the upper room right or Lydia's house where the church of Philippi was birthed because she was loaded and she probably had some space in her place right and of course Levi's house here How do you use your home? It's of strategic importance that your home and your story are used to honor the Lord. Now listen to the last few verses, Luke chapter 5, 30 through 32. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? That word just feels good off the tongue, doesn't it? Sinners. And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous. That's who you think you are. He's saying to them, but sinners to repentance. And so the religious people say, Jesus, how are you going to hang out with unholy people if you're so holy? And what does he say? What kind of doctor am I if I don't hang out with sick people, right? kind of mechanic am I if I'm out walking in the wilderness? i got to be working with cars, right? Christian, do you have sick people in your home? Like non-Christians in your home. Biblically, it is so important for you to have Christians in your home. We call that fellowship. And then there's a word that we misuse all the time. It's called hospitality. Hospitality is not when I have you to my house necessarily. Hospitality is when you have non-Christians to your house. Otherwise, it's fellowship. We're fellowshipping with each other, right? 
Hospitality is a requirement to be an elder in a church. So, do we have non-Christians in our home? Do we party well? In fall, I love it, is a perfect time for this. Kind of squeezing in the last few barbecues that we can or the Labor Day party a couple weekends ago. Or football season is perfect for that. No playoffs for the Red Sox, so we'll just have to move on. Halloween, have a fire pit and roast marshmallows and make s'mores. But listen, if you welcome people into the times of joy, they're also going to want to come in in the times of sorrow. They're going to be more comfortable to come in when they're hurting. They're going to know who to go to because you laugh with them and you care for them. And that's when you say, you're sick. We're all sick, sin sick, and it kills us. And there's an answer. He who will wipe away every tear from your eye, and death shall be no more, and pain shall be no more. It's Jesus. And we call sinners to repentance, as Jesus says. That's why I'm here. So the most holy and sanctified thing that you can probably do is to party well. It's to love your neighbor as yourself. The great commandment, love God and, and, and love people. Can I be honest? Here's what I often see. New Christians show up old Christians time and time again. You know? I think it would be the other way around. Like the older Christians, we've read the Bible, we've been sanctified, and we've grown in our, our, our faith. And they should be able to obey better, and they should probably know more. But oftentimes, old Christians who don't know a ton, or who know a ton, and, and who like to go real deep, forget the basics of the Scriptures. But the new Christians are like, they read it? That's okay, I can do that. I'm going to love my neighbor as much as I love myself. But what did Jesus tell the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, 5? He said, repent, mature Christians. Repent and do the things you did at, at first. And so some of us were Christians and mature Christians, but we're neglecting the, the great commandment to love God with every ounce of your being and to love your neighbor as yourself. And God is saying to you and to me, repent and do the things you did at first, the things that are just obvious in the scriptures. Love your neighbor as much as you love y- yourself. And when you do that, this thing is going to go forward. And you get to be in on what I'm doing when I say I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Because every single one of you have an entirely different sphere of influence than each other. And some overlap, of course, and that's a good thing. But man, did Levi have some boys, and sinners. And Levi was able to look back and say, Jesus proved wise, didn't he? There was some fruit in that. My friends came to know Jesus. My unique sphere of influence that had he listened to everybody else, maybe even Simon Peter and Andrew and, and James and John, I don't know. Had he listened to everybody else, there might not have been a group of people who began to follow Jesus, but Jesus said, I'm not too good for you. I'm good and holy, but I'm entering into your mess and I'm becoming your neighbor. And so here's what I want us to do. Just like last week, we put inside of your river guide what we call the neighborhood map. 
And obviously not all of us live on a, on a grid like this. But those eight boxes around the house in the middle represent those eight people who are closest to you. These are people that I, trained minister of the gospel, will not be able to care for as well as you. God has put them in your life for a reason. As we read from the sermon in Acts chapter 17, God determined the period that you live in and the boundary of your habitation. You live where you live on purpose by God. And like Levi, maybe you feel like I'm not the person for the job because I'm a bit of a failure. And Jesus says, no, drop your stuff, follow me, I've got something for you. You're the best man for the job. You're the best woman for the job. I have put you there for a reason. Look at that map. Write the names of your neighborhood. If you don't know them, you've got to learn them. That's how we start. How can we love somebody as much as we love ourselves if we don't even know their name? Get to know people. Fill in more details about them as you can. Pray over them. Share joy and laughter. Party with them. And then also share the reason for the hope that you have. It's got to be more than just being kind. You've got to share Jesus. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. The word is truth. And we know it. For some reason, we don't often live these out very well. Forgive us. We confess. Lord, help us to love our neighbors as much as we love ourselves. Help us to share joys with our neighbors the way Jesus did, to laugh with people, to call people in to the grace of God, into the family. For those of us who have failed in this area, thank you that like Levi, your grace is extended to us. And you say, follow me. Lord, thank you that you became a man, you dwelt among us, and you became our neighbor. That you felt the pain we feel. You lived the life we couldn't live, died the death that we deserve. And then you're resurrected so that if we trust in you and what you've done and not in what we've done, we can be made right with God. And so if there are people in this room today who do not know Jesus, God, would you stir their hearts so they can't resist you, that they would call upon your name and be saved. We commit them to you, God. Do your work in our hearts as we respond. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.